If you'll find your Bibles and go ahead and open them up to Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, we have a lot of work to do today. I'm covering quite a few verses. I want to ask you to kind of lean into the sermon. I'm going to be covering some theological topics that you're going to have to actually think through as we go through it, so make sure that you lean in and listen uh, carefully throughout the message today. When we last left Jesus, he was trying to put together a team of real followers. You see, one of the challenges that Jesus was having is that he had a lot of admirers, people that liked what he did, people that wanted to be around him in order to advance in life, but he had very few true disciples, real followers, people that were really wholeheartedly committed to Jesus Christ and his message. And so he had been looking for people that were willing to follow him. Now, you remember last week's sermon. If you weren't here to hear it, you can always catch it on the podcast at murphychurch.com. But in last week's sermon, Jesus kept calling people to follow him, but he ran into people that needed to get out more. They wanted to go back home. They were looking for the security and safety of their life. And so for whatever reason, he met three different people who were invited to follow him but they wouldn't follow him because they were called back home. So in Luke chapter 10 and verse 1, we find that Jesus has now found 70 who are followers. And so in Luke 10, he tells them to get out. Look at Luke 10 and verse 1. Jesus says, or the Bible says, After this, the Lord appointed 70 others, and he sent them ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he told them, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. Now go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Don't carry a money bag, traveling bag, or sandals. Don't greet anyone along the road, whatever house you enter. First say peace to this household. If a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they offer, for the worker is worthy of his wages. Don't be moving from house to house. And when you enter any town and they welcome you, eat the things set before you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, now notice these words because this is key to our message today. Tell them the kingdom of God has come near. Verse 10, when you enter any town and they don't welcome you, go into the streets and say, Go out into its streets and say, We are wiping off as a witness against you even the dust of your town that clings to our feet. Know this for certain. Now let's say this last sentence together again. The kingdom of God has come near. Now today is Palm Sunday. We call it Palm Sunday because we remember the day that Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem to begin the Passion Week. And you remember he rode in on a donkey. A donkey was a sign when the king would come into a community riding on a donkey. It was a sign that the king was coming in peace. And you remember the people of Jerusalem welcomed Jesus with a kingly welcome. They they gave him almost a triumph, an ancient triumph welcome into Jerusalem, expecting him to be their new king. Now here's a question for you. What crime was Jesus crucified for? 
What crime was Jesus crucified for? Well, the Jewish Sanhedrin court uh, found him guilty of blasphemy, essentially saying that he was God. The Romans didn't really care much about that, so whenever they took him to Pontius Pilate, what he was accused of is calling himself or making himself a king. And so essentially, what he was found guilty of by Pilate was treason, treason against the Roman Empire, and that's why he was crucified. And so it was this proclamation of the kingdom of God that would lead to the crown of thorns. It was this proclamation of the kingdom of God that would lead the soldiers to take the royal scepter and to beat Jesus with it. You remember in John chapter 18, when Jesus stands before Pontius Pilate, and Pilate is questioning him, and he asks him this question, Are you the king of the Jews? Do you remember how Jesus responded? He said four things. Number one, he said, My kingdom is not of this world. Essentially, yes, I I am a king, but not of this world. Number two, he said, if it were, my servants would be fighting you right now. And then he said, the origins of my kingdom are not here. And then he said a fourth thing, that my kingdom is one of truth. Which led Pilate to look at him and ask that philosophical question, truth. What is truth? Well, let me ask you this question. What is the kingdom of God? Now, have you ever read your Bible? If you read your New Testament, you'll come across this term over and over and over again, the kingdom of God. Theologians wrestle with it. There are some variants of opinions as to what is the kingdom of God. Ultimately, though, the kingdom of God refers to the supreme rule of God over all. Over everything that he has created, God is in the position of the king. Now, there are some in Christianity that would embrace kind of a deistic view of God. Here's what deism says. Deism says that there is such thing as a God that he created things, and then basically he withdrew from everything. So he created us, and then he said, well, good luck with that, and then just kind of left you to your own will. And so God doesn't ever intervene in anything, and God isn't in a position of king within that deistic mindset. There's also a newer form of theology that's out there these days. It's sometimes called process theology. It's closely related to something called open theism. Now, what this believes is that God is changing. And so... In some ways, he is the king of the universe, except for he doesn't really have control of things. And so he reacts, and he even changes based on events that are happening within time or within his creation. Now understand this. Process theology is bad theology. It's not good. It's not biblical theology. But a lot of times I'll see, unknowingly, Christians will begin to embrace it. Particularly whenever you're trying to talk to uh, human suffering and how do we we try to put together uh, a a all-good, all-loving God in a world that is unjust and has so much suffering. And so as human beings try to talk through that, frequently what we do is we put God into our position 
and we unwittingly begin to embrace a theology that, that is not biblical. I, I encourage you to look for it. You'll find it a lot of times in some popular Christian books, even some popular movies that are out right now will have a lot of process theology within it, and it's not good theology. The Christian believes, are you with me, that God is sovereign, that he is sovereign over our universe, that he is the king of all. Now, for we as Americans, the idea of God as king is harder for us to wrap our mind around because we've never lived under such a idea. We are champions of democracy and freedom and the, the will of the people, and so this metaphor of God as king is something that, as Americans, we have to make sure that we intentionally wrap our minds around, but over and over again, the New Testament portrays God, the Old Testament as well, portrays God as king. Now, what this means, God is sovereign, God is king, means that we as Christians believe that God determines truth. There is a transcendent truth that goes beyond you and me. Now, one of the great arguments of our culture today is that I am the determiner of truth. And so truth to many, is not transcendent. Every individual becomes a demigod that determines truth for themselves. As Christians, we believe there is such a thing as transcendent truth that comes from above. Why? Because God is king. As sovereign, as king, we believe that it is God who is the author of life. He is the one that grants life and death Now notice this as well, as sovereign, God is the one that grants you rights. Within our constitutional speak, we talk about inalienable rights granted to us by our Creator. Why? Because God is sovereign, and it is also God who grants us freedom. So if you embrace a free will and you say, well, I can do it, God is the one that grants you those freedoms. As king, he is the one who assigns creation its mission. Creation exists for him and for his glory, and he is the supreme king of all. God as king, it's one of the great motifs of the New Testament. About a hundred years before Jesus, there was a Thracian by the name of Spartacus. I am Spartacus. Not sure why I said that like Rocky Balboa, but anyway. (laughs) This Thracian uh, got in trouble with Rome, and he was sold into slavery, and he was later uh, shipped to Rome, and he became a gladiator. And the story of Spartacus is, is that after some time, he led a rebellion within the gladiator school, and this eventually led to a large rebellion against the Roman Empire. The Third Servile War took place. There was as many as 100,000 slaves that were escaped their masters, and they fought Rome. They defeated Rome several times, but eventually the Roman army hunted them down, and eventually they were all caught and killed, and many of them were crucified by Pompey, Pompey the Great. Now, it might surprise you a little bit to know that the story of Scripture begins with a somewhat similar plot. The evil one slithers onto the pages of Genesis, and he leads a rebellion. 
It's a rebellion against the king. The king is the creator. The king is God. Now, all of us join the rebel army because all of us, as soon as we are capable of moral action, we become transgressors and we sin against God and we live our lives in rebellion to God, living according to our own way as opposed to living in uh, willing submission to the will of God. So the king determines that the rebellion must be stopped and that the punishment for rebelling against God is death. Romans talks about how the wages of sin is what? Death. Now here's the twist in the Christian story. In the Christian story, the king, God, is completely good. He is benevolent in every way. He is also just and holy. As the judge of the universe, the creator of the universe, he must be just in how he deals with us. And he loves his people. The king loves his people. So he's a good king, altogether pure, altogether holy. So enter Jesus. Rather than sending an army, the king sends his son. And the son lives a life of obedience to the king rather than joining the rebellion. There is no sin in him. He does not rebel against the father's will in any way. The son obeys the commands of the king. And the son makes an atonement for the rebellion by giving his life for the lives of sinners. The event that we call the cross, the atonement. It's not just the execution of a good teacher or a good example. As Christians, we believe it is the atonement. The cross is the atonement for our sin. So the Son then breaks the rebellion of evil by overcoming death, and He presents an offering. An offering to all who will believe in Him, place their faith in Him, and ultimately follow Him. In verses 9 and 10, Jesus tells his followers to proclaim this, the kingdom of God, the reign of God, has come near to you. And Jesus over and over again in his teachings tells us to believe and follow him. You see, one of the distinctions of Jesus versus other religious leaders is that Jesus didn't just say, okay, here's all my teachings, go do it. Jesus says, it begins with you believing in me and following me. Until you do that, you won't be able to live out my teachings at all. So Jesus tells us to believe and follow, and the king has come to lead us out of our rebellion of sin, and the king has come to lead us to life rather than death. So Jesus says, stop running away from me, Stop trying to be God yourself. Stop your rebellion against God and instead run to me. So when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the people welcomed him as a king. Now, why would they do that? Well, if you read the pages of Genesis, you'll find that over and over again, God makes a covenant with the people that are kind of the stars of the Genesis story. With Abraham, with Isaac, with Rebecca, uh, with Israel, God makes a covenant with them. And part of that covenant 
is an earthly kingdom. He promises Israel an earthly kingdom. And so the Jewish people were waiting for a Messiah. Messiah is an anointed one, a Christ, an anointed one who would come onto the scene and usher in this kingdom that was promised to them in a political earthly sense all the way back to the pages of Genesis. Well, when Jesus begins teaching and preaching, he claims to be the Messiah. So here was the assumption that the people made. They assumed that being Messiah meant that Jesus was going to overthrow Rome, that Jesus was going to set up an earthly political kingdom. So here was the surprise. They welcomed him into Jerusalem as the king. He rides in, he goes to the temple, he looks around, and then he leaves. And the surprise was that Jesus did not come to overthrow Rome. He came to overthrow the rebellion of sin that's in our hearts. You see, Jesus didn't sit on a throne of gold. Jesus was hung on a throne of wood. Jesus didn't live in a kingly palace. Jesus' body was laid in a borrowed tomb. But here's the good news. The good news is that the king was not overcome by death. Instead, the king overcame death with life. That's the good news. So now, enter you. The grace of God is intended for you. But it's not intended to stop with you. Jesus, in verse 3, tells his disciples, Now go. Now this is a theme of Jesus' teaching, particularly towards the end of his time here on earth. Go. He tells us in the Great Commission, go and make disciples. He tells us in Acts chapter 1, go and be my witnesses. Why? Because verse 2 tells us the harvest is plenteous, but not many people are willing to go. And so Jesus says, I want you to go. And as you go, sorry, I got something in my, in my throat. As you go, he says, proclaim the kingdom of God is near. The message of Jesus is saturated with the truth. He wants his followers to get out more. Now, our default is to stay home. Our default is to try and be comfortable. And, you know, we think, well, there's so much to do at home. I just want to stay home and stay comfortable. But Jesus says, that's not my mission for you. You are to go. Now, in the passage that we're looking at today, as you go, as you join your life to the mission of God, there's a few things that you need to remember. You see, here, here's, here's what excites me. It excites me that my life can be a part of something that is so much larger than me. It excites me that my life can be a part of the plan of God that has been intended for humanity and for me since before the foundations of the earth. It excites me that my life can be a part of the expansion of the gospel to all peoples. It excites me that I live in an age where technology has made it such 
where every man, woman, boy, and girl in my lifetime can have scriptures in their language. That we live in an age where it is possible for every man, woman, boy, and girl on planet earth to hear the good news of the gospel. That excites me. But to be a part of that, I have to be willing to go beyond myself. I can't view Christianity as just about how to make me comfortable. I have to start viewing Christianity as how can I be a part of the mission of God. And so Jesus says, as you go, wherever you go, making disciples, there's a few things that you should remember. Number one, you go as sheep among wolves. The world is a vicious place. God's not up in heaven going, I didn't realize that was going to happen. The world can have a lot of darkness. It can have a lot of evil. And he sends us as Christians out into the world with the full knowledge that the world is a vicious place and that sometimes we go as sheep among wolves. But he sends us anyway to go. Number two, some will accept you and others will not. That's one of the themes there is Jesus sends out the 70. He basically tells them some people will welcome you into their home, some will not. Do you realize that you can't save anyone? The only one that can save a person is God. The Holy Spirit has to do His work in their heart. You can't save anyone, but it's not your mission to save people. That's God's mission. Your mission is to proclaim the good news, to be a witness. I heard one man say this week, your mission is to put a pebble in their shoe. To share the gospel in such a way that, man, it starts just annoying them and they have to wrestle with it and they have to uh, come to an acceptance themselves or to a rejection themselves. But we are called to go and be witnesses wherever we go. That's the, the greatest mission of the church, to make disciples who go. Thirdly, the kingdom of God is spiritual today, but remember one day... It will be physical. One day there will be a physical, political kingdom. Now just let me take a little bit of a theological jaunt. I'll lose like 85% of you, but a few of you will track with me here, okay? I am a premillennialist, and I do embrace a pre-tribulation rapture. Some of you may be amillennial. Some of you may be dispensational. If you're dispensational, you believe the kingdom of God is entirely in the future, I'm premillennial, pre-trib, I'm the one preaching, so I believe that there is a physical kingdom in the future, okay? So, the Bible says in verse 13, woe to you, and eventually when we're all in heaven, you'll agree with me because we'll go up in the rapture. So, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes, but it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. Now, he's talking about a second coming. He's talking about a judgment day. And you, Capernaum, you will be exalted to heaven. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will go down to Hades. Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects me rejects you rejects me. And whoever rejects me rejects the one who sent me. So Jesus begins talking in a prophetic, futuristic sense, and he says, 
there is coming a day of judgment. There is coming a day where the Son will return, the second coming of, of Jesus Christ, regardless of where you come down on all that stuff I talked about a few minutes ago. We all believe that there is a second coming of Jesus Christ. And the first time Jesus came, he came as the innocent baby of Bethlehem. The second time he comes, he'll come as the King of Kings. Okay? The first time he came, he came to die on the cross to bring about a spiritual kingdom that reigns within our heart and is seen within the church. The second time he comes, he'll bring a physical kingdom and every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is King of kings, Lord of lords, that he is the supreme one of the universe. And so we should always be mindful that the kingdom of God uh, is spiritual today and we wrestle with it, but one day it will be physical. And we will reign with God forever and ever. Fourth, Christians find our deep joy in our heavenly hope rather than our earthly victories. Look at verse 17. The 70 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. You see, Jesus had given the 70 a supernatural power. It was intended to reveal to the people that were hearing that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, the Messiah. And he said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a lightning flash. Look, I have given you the authority to trample on snakes and scorpions. can't stand scorpions, can you? Uh, snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing will ever harm you. Then notice verse 20. Don't get so caught up on what's all the snakes and scorpions stuff, okay? I'm not going to bring out some rattlesnakes right now and start holding them, all right? Then Jesus says in verse 20, However, don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Okay, these guys had experienced some great earthly victories, but Jesus says, don't get lost in that because that's not the great victory. The great victory is that your name is written in heaven. Now, here's what happens so often in Christianity is we get so distracted with the today that we can't see beyond the circumstances of today to realize that our citizenship here is temporary, but our citizenship in heaven is eternal. That what happens here is always in flux, but in heaven we have a God and we have a King who is altogether good and loving, and Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forevermore. And Jesus teaches us to find our deep, deep joy in heaven. I am convinced that you can't really live today until you begin to comprehend the beauty and realness of heaven and find deep satisfaction and joy in knowing that Christ has the destination secured in his blood. The night before Jesus died, he established something that we as Christians call the Lord's Supper. And he told us to do this, to take this in remembrance of him. That every time we take the Lord's Supper, we are to remember Jesus. And so for 2,000 years, Christians have remembered Jesus by participating in the taking of the Lord's Supper. It is a sacred time. And because of that, it is for those who are already believers in Jesus Christ. If you're not yet a believer, we ask that you not take the Lord's Supper. But we do invite you 
to become a believer. And so we invite you to come and talk to me or come and talk to one of our deacons during the time of the Lord's Supper. And all you have to say to them is, I would like to be a believer. And we will help you today take that step of faith and become a believer in Jesus Christ. As Christians take of the Lord's Supper, we remember his death on the cross. There are two parts to it, the bread and the juice. The bread represents Jesus' body that was broken for us. The juice represents the new covenant that was established in his blood, a covenant of grace so that we might have forgiveness for our past and purpose for our present and hope for our future through Jesus Christ and who he is. And so as we take of the Lord's Supper, we remember the salvation that he brings us. We believe that the bread and the juice or the wine is is symbolic. It doesn't actually turn into the body and blood of Jesus Christ, but it is symbolic of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And so when we receive it into ourselves, it is symbolic of one receiving Christ into your soul. It remembers our mission. When we as a church take of the Lord's Supper, we are reminded that Jesus has called us as a body, as a group of believers to a mission that goes beyond just living paycheck to paycheck. The mission of the gospel, to share Christ with the world around us. And so when we take of the Lord's Supper, it reminds us that we have been called not to be comfortable, but we have been called to go. We are one church in 500 locations. Everywhere you go, there goes the church making disciples. As we take of the Lord's Supper, it remembers that our home is ultimately not found here on earth. Over the past week, we've seen some very sobering news stories. In the coming week, we'll see more. The next week, we'll see more. While we're here on this earth, there will always be darkness and injustice and difficulty, no matter whether your candidate is in office or not. There will be tough times. But when we take of the Lord's Supper, we remember that ultimately our home is not here on earth. Our home is with Christ in heaven. And so we connect ourselves today to a hope that is eternal. Would you be so kind as to stand with me, please, and bow your heads. Our deacons are going to move to three stations. We have one here in the front. We have two in the back. Whichever one is closest to where you are sitting, if you will go after I finish praying, go to that station. If you are a believer in Christ, we invite you to receive the Lord's Supper. The deacons will serve it to you. You can then return to your seat there by yourself or with some friends or with those that you call family. You can have a time of prayer, a time of reflection. And whenever you are ready, I invite you to take of the bread and the juice, remembering Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus Christ, and we thank you for the greatness of your love. We thank you, Father, that the kingdom of God has come near, that our hearts do not have to live in open rebellion against you, But instead, Father, our hearts can be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And Lord, we join 
with generations of witnesses that we flourish when we gratefully submit to your truth, submit to your reign in our lives. And we join with the chorus of heaven proclaiming that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. And during these moments that we take the Lord's Supper, we remember. We remember that this week is a holy week. We remember how this week marks the moment when Christ died for our sins. And we also anticipate next week when we gather as a church to celebrate victory over death, victory over rebellion, hope for all. And so, Lord, as we take of the Lord's Supper, we do so in remembrance of Jesus Christ, proclaiming him as Lord and Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to come and take of the Lord's table.